I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. The focus of this podcast series is ideas and the theory of change under the wide lens of sustainability. And generally, we discuss these ideas in cause and effect form on policy, regulation, norms, on the finance sector, or to markets more broadly. But truth be told, it's not often you find an idea that permeates the global, national, and local layers, and also provides a powerful look at motivation and change at the personal level. Which is why this episode resonates so much with me. Because it's not so much about international or national intransigence when it comes to climate change, but about how the response by states and cities governors and mayors, are taking up the slack and starting to lead on climate action. And it's about the personal response in the wake of loss from 9-11 and Hurricane Sandy towards public service and international climate diplomacy. So why are cities the solution? In short, because they have to be. More than half the world's population live in cities today, and urbanization will only drive that figure higher to two-thirds the world's population by 2050. Cities consume 78% of global energy and account for more than 60% of global emissions. So it's worth understanding just how cities are thinking about climate resilience. It's why I'm excited to have our next guest, Lolita Jackson, on the show. We talk about how New York City is addressing climate change within its quadrennial plan, One NYC, as well as its international climate diplomacy efforts with other cities. Lolita is the special advisor to the Senior Director of Climate Policy and Programs for New York City. She's responsible for international diplomacy around climate for the New York City Mayor's Office, which means that she's the primary liaison to the United Nations and international and domestic governments regarding sustainability and resiliency, including 100 Resilient Cities, C40, and other initiatives. Before that, she was Chief of Staff to the New York City Senior Advisor to the Mayor for Recovery, Resiliency, and Infrastructure. She was also Director of External Affairs for the New York City Mayor's Office of Housing Recovery Operations, where she was part of the leadership team that addressed resiliency following Hurricane Sandy. Before working for the New York City Mayor's Office, she was at Morgan Stanley Investment Management for 12 years. Welcome to the show, Lolita. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Look, so I want to start out with your arc. It's really interesting. You sort of came from the finance sector at Morgan Stanley. And for the last decade and a half, you've focused on public services, starting at the community level, and now ultimately at the international climate dimension. Let's talk about that. How, how did that happen? So I worked for Morgan Stanley for quite some time. I thought I was on my path to becoming a managing director by the age of 40, and I had it all planned out, and then 9-11 happened. I actually was in the building during 9-11. The person I was going on the stairs with, unfortunately, did not make it out. Um, and as you can imagine, it makes you rethink what you're doing with your life. And I felt if I could get killed going to work, I better really love my job. And I decided to quit. And I took a year off, year and a half off, to figure out what I wanted to do with myself Landed in the New York City Mayor's Office as my next role and really climbed through that atmosphere, and I really loved it. And when Hurricane Sandy hit, they pulled about 40 of us from our 
pre-existing jobs and seconded us to something called the Special Initiative for Rebuilding and Resiliency right after Hurricane Sandy to build a resiliency plan for the aftermath of the hurricane, as well as other things such as urban heat and other climate-related things that might happen in New York City. And that's how I got into climate. So it really was an accident. But I do have a science background. I went to Penn for the engineering school, and I majored in chemical engineering. So CO2E was not something completely foreign to me. So it was not as hard a transition as I thought it might be. As someone who's lived through Hurricane Sandy and actually been part of that policy response to that, what does resiliency, what does climate security mean at a city level? Well, we really need to make sure that all of our areas of the city are protected as much as possible because we're a dense city. You know, some places talk about managed retreat and moving people away from the coastlines. We're an island city. We have 520 miles of coastline. Only one of the boroughs is actually connected to the mainland, which is the Bronx. So we don't really have the option of moving large amounts of people away from the water. In addition, a lot of our housing facilities, housing authority facilities, public housing, is actually built on the waterfront. So Coney Island has significant housing uh, facilities for um, poorer people. We also have the Rockaways, which is very, very heavily affected. So we have to shore that housing up, that housing stock, and make sure that those people are able to stay where they live. So it's really being able to protect those areas and also protect for sea level rise for areas that may not be affected now but will be affected in the future. So our planning processes look at future as well as present. How big an aha moment was Hurricane Sandy for New York City? Well, huge because we'd never had a storm like that. There was a 14-foot storm surge in lower Manhattan, 14 feet. The Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, which is a major thoroughfare to get from lower Manhattan to Brooklyn, was filled from end to end with water. One of our major subway stations, which leads from the Staten Island Ferry to lead people uptown and to the Bronx, the number one train station is called South Ferry. It had just been revamped. I don't know how many hundreds of millions of dollars were spent, and it got completely destroyed and they had to rebuild it again. Lower Manhattan had no power because uh, one of the substations, they had a fire, and all the power in Manhattan below 39th Street went out. Goldman Sachs happened to have a generator, so they were able to keep running, and there was like one other area. The Battery Park City still had their power. Nothing else worked. That's billions of dollars of commerce lost. So we had $19 billion in economic uh, losses and damages. If that same storm happened in, uh, 50 years from now with sea level rise, we'd have $90 billion of damage. Yeah. So what did it mean for sort of a reset in terms of the thinking and the approaches to climate change for New York City right after that? I mean, did it did it kind of produce an upheaval in terms of how you create and think about resilience at all different levels? Well, there's cascading effects that I think people had not anticipated until it actually happened. So there's two major things that I took away from that. Number one, half the food in New York City comes from through one place called Hunts Point Market. Sandy was a tidal event, meaning that it would happen at high tide at one area and low tide at the other. If it had been the opposite and it had been high tide where our food is, we wouldn't have been able to get our food. That's a significant, significant issue. So our planning processes after Sandy dealt with the unintended consequences of things like that. Another thing that I noticed, because I grew up in public assistance, the main mail facility for many parts of the city is in the west side of Manhattan. It was completely flooded. And so if you were on public assistance... Remember, it happened October 29th. People were still getting paper checks. You didn't get your public assistance check on the 1st of November. So it was really important to think about that. Um, just a lot of things you would never have thought about. Even shelters. Some shelters don't take pets. As we know in Katrina, some people died because they didn't want to leave their dogs behind. 
So how do you have pet-friendly places? How do you have places where you're evacuating people that are able to deal with their medical issues? So there's all sorts of things that happen through this because of the long-term displacement that we recognize we need to empower not only um, ourselves to make sure that we're able to help people, but also the local entities in the neighborhoods. I have a great example of that in the Rockaways, which is a significantly poor and largely black community. Uh, there's a church leader that was very trusted. So FEMA wanted to have their setup center somewhere else, and we convinced them to have it at his center, at his school, because people were used to coming there. They were trusted partner, and all of the corporations could go through him, etc. So we recognize resilience is not just hard infrastructure, it's also the community and helping them be resilient as well. And when you think about doing reviews, maybe testing you know, the resilience currently for a future Hurricane Sandy or, or some kind of event, how do you think about that? What does that look like? Our Office of Emergency Management actually really is in charge of that, our hazard mitigation plan, and the city just came out with their recent version of that about a few months ago, I believe. So there's a whole division of New York City government that does tabletop exercises. They even have a situation room, basically, where every agency in New York City, as well as the partner agencies, have a desk. So often they'll make sure that people are trained who are going to go and man those desks. I actually had to do that during Hurricane Irene, which was a year before Hurricane Sandy. So everybody sort of knows where they're supposed to go and what they're supposed to do. It's interesting because I sort of think of Hurricane Sandy as this sort of aha moment. But the reality is New York City has been thinking about this for a long time. In fact, back even in 2007, when you had the formal start of the policy program and agenda. So can you sort of pull back a little bit and give us some sense of the history of that and how it's evolved? Sure. It's funny because I've been in New York City government for 13 years. So I actually, in some job or another, have worked on every plan we've done for climate. So I think I'm one of the last people left. In 2007, Deputy Mayor Doctoroff at the time from Mayor Bloomberg decided to put together something called Plan YC. And there was an office that was convened to actually do that work called the Office of Long-Term Planning and Sustainability. And it largely dealt with the growth and sustainability of New York City. So we were supposed to grow to 9 million people. And what does the New York City of the future look like to accommodate that? We are mandated by law every four years to update that plan. So in 2011, it added much more sustainability um, component. And then in 2013, we did an interim version of the plan, which I was just discussing before, which was a special initiative for rebuilding and resiliency. And that was our first resiliency plan. There are 257 resiliency initiatives in there. It's 400 pages. It's very, very comprehensive. Probably one of the proudest moments of my professional career because we did it in five months. It was amazing. Um, So... We really we worked on that, and that's the resiliency component. And then in 2015, when Mayor de Blasio came in, he wanted to stamp his own imprint on it. And so he added a fourth component, which is equity or inequality, so more of the social aspects of what makes a city resilient. So pre-K for all, so now four-year-olds can go to school. And that's significant because you have many single mothers in New York City, and if they weren't able to have their children taken care of, they couldn't work, which was a significant issue. So now it's free. Uh, it used to cost a lot of money to have childcare for these mothers, and now we're going to do 3K for all. We also wanted to make sure it was a $15 minimum wage, which the state actually passed very soon after our 2015 plan. And there are other initiatives such as that, community health hubs, et cetera. So that really brought in the element of making sure that the 40% immigrant population is included, the 25% of New York City residents who don't have English as their primary language are able to take part in the spoils, as it were, of New York City growing. Got it. One counter-argument I've read about is that by focusing on inequality, it means less focus on some of the environmental objectives. And I think from a European context, 
I think there's an increasing recognition that the refrain that I always use is from a politician in Germany. Politics is about people. Climate politics is about people. You can't divorce one without the other. Talk about why these are so intertwined from a New York City perspective. Well, I don't think you could ever really separate them because we have a significant portion of our residents, um, 45%, who are at or near poverty. So if you want to solve the climate issues, you have to involve the people who are being affected by them. The example I always like to give is the mother whose child has asthma. The kid has asthma. He's out of school two to three days a month for asthma attacks. The mother then probably has to stay home from work because she can't afford the child care to take care of the child while she's at work. So the mother suffers, the child suffers, and the neighborhood suffers because then her stress levels are higher and she maybe can't participate in her neighborhood. So if we make that air quality better for that child, the child doesn't have asthma anymore. She can go to work. She can fully participate in her community. That's just one small, tiny example, but that's what really drives me and resonates with me because the climate justice issues in New York City are severe. And when you ignore those communities and you don't have them involved in the planning process, then you're really not planning for a resilient or climate-friendly future. Do you think about it more formally through the just transition framework that's starting to gain more momentum? Yes, because also a significant portion of people in New York City don't have credentials, as it were. They don't have a college degree. Some don't have a high school degree. And so if we're going to change these jobs, we're going away from manufacturing and we're going away from some other things. If we have these jobs that are going to be the green jobs, as we call it, we need to train people to have these jobs. And New York City is very committed to do that. We have a green jobs core that we're forming. It'll be 3,000 workers to help with that work. In addition, we're talking to the trade unions and put out something called a buildings mandate, Climate Mobilization Act. And that will mandate that buildings above 25,000 square feet will have to make themselves climate resilient. And if they do not do this work to be greener, then they're going to have escalating fines. And I believe that's starting in 2024. So there's going to be significant workforce is going to have to help make those buildings green, right? So we're working with all those entities and we're trying to get people trained up so they can do this work. And it's really important to us. I'm actually meeting while I'm here in the UK with a member of the Just Transition of Scotland to find out how they're doing that work. We really want to convene and talk to other cities and other entities about how they're doing it because it is really significant component if we're going to be successful in our work. Great. How do you reconcile two other elements, let's say the climate objectives and the growth objectives? Because despite the lessons learned from Hurricane Sandy, the fact is we've seen unprecedented growth you know, in housing around New York City for the last four, five, six years, to the degree that on the stats I've read that uh, there are more residents in New York City living in high-risk flood zones than any other city in the U.S. So how do you sort of balance those two? Well, one of the things, like I said before, we recognize that we are a coastal city and we are space constrained, so it's really difficult for us to move people away from the the coastlines. But what we can do is a a couple of things that we're thinking about. We're developing policies and governance structures that support and prioritize resiliency and adaptation when these buildings go up. So a good example of this is the climate resiliency design guidelines that we instituted in the past year. And that considers historic climate data with specific regional forward-looking data in the design of our city's facilities. So this is for all city buildings that are going to be built going forward. And the guidelines will help integrate climate resiliency features into future and ongoing municipal capital projects. So the architects and engineers will design the buildings, landscapes, infrastructure with freeboard, which means that you have to build above a certain altitude 
three more feet. Uh, that's just one example. There's other things that are incorporated in that. Well, we're also updating the city's building codes, and we're developing and adapting our flood maps. So FEMA has flood maps that they release, and because the city actually works with the New York City panel on climate change to get our own New York City levels, we actually have worked with FEMA, and we protested, as it were, our, and we wanted our own maps put in place. So now that's happening. So anybody new who's building will then be able to use those maps for their data and know what they need to do to make their buildings resilient. So we're, we're slowly getting there, but we are uh, recognizing that it's very important to have that out there. I, I want to stick on this a little bit more because there's there's always this perception that growth comes at a cost, right? And, and often what gets sacrificed is, is sometimes sustainability or equality. And so when you look at some of the big projects that New York City is focused on, and the big U tends to uh, be talked about a lot, uh, uh, for better or for worse, but there's this idea that building big sea barrier infrastructure like that protects certain interests, i.e. Lower Manhattan, Wall Street, at the expense of other interests, lower-income communities. How do you think about that? And help me put that in the context of maybe the wider spending program that New York is focused on. Well, what people call the big U is actually East Side Coastal Resiliency, and that actually has a significant low-income population. So as I was saying earlier, there are many sort of housing development projects that are actually put on the waterfront. So unlike other areas of the country and even of the world where it's, you know, very high-end coastal living, they actually put a lot of the housing developments there because a lot of the waterfront was dock work. And so the workers could be located near where they worked. So there's significant housing developments on the water that got flooded, and those people need protection. So actually, lower Manhattan coast resiliency, yes, that includes the area of Wall Street. But when you go up a little bit further, which is east side coastal resiliency, that's actually significant low-income community. So it's really protecting them. So there's a park called East River Park that they're going to shore up, and they're going to actually lift the park. So it's actually a protective barrier, but also can be used by the community. And that's, um, you know, just part of all of our work that we're doing in places like Red Hook, Coney Island, the Rock, Far Rockaway, which is the poorer part of the Rockaways or the lower income part of the Rockaways. We've worked with those communities to really come up with planning processes that include their feedback. So in addition to that, a lot of the developments that are happening, we have something called mandatory inclusionary housing. So if you're building a large development and you need any permissions at all from the city to change the zoning for some reason, you have to include a certain percentage of affordable housing. So while we recognize that, you know, growth may look like it's not really helping the sustainability aims or the adaptation aims, we recognize that these things have to work hand in hand. So we actually changed that code to have the mandatory inclusionary housing about three or four years ago. I want to jump lanes a little bit and talk about partnerships, something that you're overseeing right now. Yeah. Um, how important are these as, as ingredients to not just architecting your own policy agenda, but certainly sharing the lessons learned from New York City? It's something that I'm really passionate about because there's a thirst for sharing information. And New York City doesn't have all the answers, as we know, so we do significant work with other cities. One really great example of this is with the city of Copenhagen. We signed an MOU a number of years ago to deal with cloudbursts. That's when it rains a significant amount. And this is also why seawalls don't necessarily have the answer because if it rains a lot and it's not a storm surge situation, then where's the rain going, right? So you have to think about all these things together. So that MOU has been in effect for a number of years. 
And our Department of Environmental Protection works very closely with the city of Copenhagen on how to deal with this issue. So that's one of the ones I love the most because it really is, you know, it worked very well bilaterally. In a larger context, we also have a partnership with the city of London on something called the Best Invest Forum. So, you know, you have to have a lot of tools in your arsenal when you're talking about climate change and resiliency and sustainability. And so fossil fuel industry has significantly impacted many cities, and they're actually part of the reason that we're having some of these problems. So we're trying to convince cities to divest from fossil fuels. And for New York City, we committed to divest $5 billion out of our $200 billion portfolio from fossil fuels. We also decided that we want to up our investment in sustainable solutions from 1% to 2%, which will be from $2 billion to $4 billion. So ourselves in London put together this forum to try to convince other cities. So there are a number of cities already in it, 14, and we're trying to work and get even more cities involved. And so that's another thing that we're doing to really talk to other cities. And there's so many other examples of that. Uh, C40, which is the climate cities, large cities in the world are in that together. They have I think about 20 networks, and it ranged from urban heat to coastal flooding, connecting Delta cities, land use. And so all of those have a number of cities from 10 to 20 that are members of them, those networks, and they meet in workshops and they do webinars. I think that's just some of the examples. Yeah, I've heard Mayor de Blasio talk about one New York City, the policy agenda, sort of serving as a model for other municipalities, states, and, and national governments. Are there any issues that you see just in terms of how they translate that, whether it's budget issues, whether it's legal issues or anything? You don't control everything. So what happens in a lot of cities that you have to make sure you're engaging your partners, whether it's, you know, for example, New York City, we're a regional economy, right? So we actually um, held a number of meetings with our regional counterparts in other counties, other states, and have them come in because you have millions of people coming in and out of New York City every day through transportation. So we, we have shared interests there. So that's one example. Another is that we don't control in New York City our transportation system. That's actually the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. So we obviously need to be talking to them. We also need to be talking to uh, the regional utilities and the other large facilities. There's actually something called the Climate Change Adaptation Task Force, which is 58 entities that are you know large hospitals, you name it, Verizon, which is the, the phone company. Any entity that we don't necessarily control we need to work with them to make sure that they have the solutions in place that they need and that information sharing happens across the platform. So when we talk to other cities, they think, well, New York, you have all this money, you have all these resources, but we, even with the resources we have, we still have to work with other people. So it is a scalable conversation, and it's a very open one that we have. We actually talk to a lot of cities around some of the issues that we've had. And also, as I said, we are extremely diverse. We have, like I said, 40% of our citizens residents, excuse me, not citizens, are not U.S. born, and many of them don't speak English very well. So how do you communicate with a polyglot like that? Hmm. So it actually, even when Hurricane Sandy happened, we had to actually put like a paper on lampposts. That's how bad it was as far as communicating with people because no one had power. So even just making sure that cities understand that you have to communicate with people all different ways and have the tools that you need to do that, and it's not about how much money you throw at it. Yeah, one of the standout features for me, having gone to a lot of COP uh, conferences, has just been the, the presence and prominence of, of states, of cities, really leading the charge, despite setbacks at some COPs and, and certainly some successes like the Paris Agreement. But, I mean, what, what do you think that says about the role of the governments or the response by governments? Um, what does that say, you know, in terms of a, a willingness and a commitment or an inability to address climate risk? 
Well, cities need to take the lead in the absence of national action. And, you know, the biggest example of that is my own country, the United States, full stop. So there's initiatives like We Are Still In, which basically came together the day after the Trump administration decided they wanted to eventually pull out. Climate mayors and C40 and all these other networks that we've named before have been extremely important in the U.S. in particular, especially to continue movement on climate action. Uh, We were the first city in the world, New York City, to submit something called a voluntary local review. There's an event that happens every year called the High Level Political Forum, where action on the SDGs for each country is supposed to be reported. So it's supposed to be a voluntary national review, but the United States has not submitted one. So we decided as a city we were going to do so. And then other cities around the world have decided they want to do so as well. So we really led on that effort, and that's just one example. But we're not going to wait for the federal government. There's a lot of power that cities have to do things for their citizens, and we're closer to it. So people are calling their city council people. People are calling the mayor's office saying, help me, what's going on here? And so we have to respond. So we can't wait for the national level to get their acts together to do it. Let's talk about the divest invest movement that you mentioned earlier. Um, why is this so important? And talk about the climate scenario that New York City is modeling to and why that needs to be reflected in the finance community. And as an aside, I'm sort of curious, what can the finance industry do more of, better of? I mean, you having come from it, what can we be better at? Well, if you look at the fact that cities are making a lot of commitments to a 1.5 degree future rather than a 2 or 3 degree future, which means that they are significantly electrifying their vehicle fleets, for example. That's something New York City is committed to do. We're going to have 100% hydropower for city operations. New York City has 400,000 employees and 1 million school children. So you just we're the size of a small city just municipally and what we have control over, our own assets. And if you multiply that by all the cities around the world, that's going to be a significant impact to these companies that are purveying of fossil fuels. So eventually, some of those assets are going to get stranded in the ground. So if you're planning for an $80 a barrel oil price in 30 years, it's probably not going to be the case. So if you are a financial company, you really need to be looking at what's going to happen 10, 20, 30 years from now if these cities and eventually some companies that have actually decided to become green as well, Walmart, if they decide to become green completely or Starbucks, those are significant impacted in assets. And that really needs to be factored into the calculations when you're talking about the value of a portfolio, when you have that in your portfolio. There's a gentleman that I met the other day that he said he has a stranded assets financial instrument. And I actually want to learn more about that and tell people about that because they need to see what actually is the scenario going to be in 20 or 30 years when all these cities and all these entities have turned over. So one of the things I love companies to do and financial companies to do is to actually pay attention to what cities are doing. I spoke at a a panel discussion a week ago where when I started talking about this, the heads perked up and, and raised up because they hadn't thought about that. You have a Paris, you have a New York, you have a London. And there was a city in China. I don't remember what city it was. I, want to, I feel like it was in Shenzhen, maybe. They stood up at C40's conference for mayors about a month ago and said one city went from zero to 10,000 electric buses in one year. And if you have all these cities decide to do things like that, that's a significant impact. And so the finance industry really needs to be not just looking at what businesses are doing, but looking at what cities are doing and driving that action. Great. So looking forward at uh, COP26 next year, give us your preview. I'm sure you'll be there, but what should we expect? I'm very excited for it, A, because I have a personal connection to Scotland. I actually sing at the Fringe in Glasgow once a year. (laughs) So, um, But just it's a great country. They're doing a lot in the sustainability and climate realm. They're really leading in some of the areas. But also, I think it's going to be a significant cities component because the presidential administration for the United States said on November 4th that they were going to pull out on November 4th of next year. So if President Trump does win again, we will be out of Paris. 
which means that all the U.S. cities are kind of on their own. So I feel that there needs to be significant planning process to actually have cities have a big voice at the COP. And I actually met with some people who are on the COP planning team yesterday to talk through how we can be helpful and impactful in, in getting us there. So I'm very excited to see what the next COP holds next year for that reason. So my last question is a question I tend to ask all interviewees, which is, there's a large part of the audience that is student-oriented, and they're incredibly interested in resilience and climate change and coming from all different perspectives, whether it's the legal or finance or from the NGO world. And so I always ask, what advice would you give them, just given your wealth of experience in the public realm and the private realm, what advice would you give them in examining this area? Well, for me, it's interesting because my background is so polyglot. For some people, it doesn't make sense, but for me, it, it does. Going to school for engineering, working in finance, and being just a people person, that all was able to come together because, you know, I have sort of the chops analytically to understand the work. But at the end of the day, it's all about people for me. When you're doing your work, always remember that we're trying to make the way of life of future inhabitants be better than it would be if we had done nothing. And for me, that's that's what animates me. And as I said, that story about the single mother with asthma or the people who live in the housing developments who felt that the city had failed them, I want to give a little bit of an anecdote. I, I helped lead the community relations response after Sandy when I was talking about that report we, that we did. We had one meeting where this uh, woman stood up, and I was holding the mic so that she wouldn't talk too long. She started yelling. She said, you haven't cared about us for 30 years, and now you come now? You're not even going to come back? And I said, that would have been me had I not gone to Penn. That would have been me standing there having that complaint. And I recognize that we maybe we did fail those people. I don't know. But the point is she felt that we had failed them. And so if there's a little bit of confidence that we can give them, that we are going to be helpful to them and give them the resources they need, I want to help provide that. So for me, I'm a little bit uh, more removed from that day to day, but that's what I focus on is making sure those people feel like we're actually listening to them and care about them. So it's been fascinating to unpack how New York City's approaching uh, and addressing climate change from a policy perspective and within its quadrennial plan 1NYC and its international climate diplomacy efforts, um, which touch on its four visions for growth, equality, sustainability, and resilience. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Lolita Jackson, Special Advisor to the Senior Director of Climate Policy and Programs for New York City. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks, Lolita. Thanks for having me. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.